about the resurrection and the nature of Christianity. What does it mean? What, what makes Christianity unique? What gives it a claim that other religions do not have? And we often say the claim that Christianity has that other religions do not is that the God of Christianity rose, he took the ultimate thing that humanity threw at him, death, and he rose from the dead. And, and yet it can feel really um, intellectual for us to say that. Or really, uh, it's, it's what we've been taught to say. And as we were going through the um, communion service on Friday night, something struck me when Chris was reading the passages that relate to communion or, or Jesus' suffering, and it struck me how graphic the scriptures really are at Jesus' death. The crown of thorns, and they, they hit him with it. And the earliest readers of Christianity would have had experience with those events, those kinds of things happening in their world, and knew how absolutely gruesome Jesus' suffering was. We've sanitized it today into a cross that we wear, we use, we sell, we follow. But I think it's important for us to wrestle with the fact that Jesus suffered a great deal in his death. Because we have to make sure that he is completely unable to rise again from the dead on his own. Did you catch that? You have, to make comp- you have to make certain, the scriptures make really certain that the amount of suffering that Jesus took, it was, it was physically impossible for him to raise himself up out of the grave in any physical way. The earliest arguments against the resurrection were that Jesus was not really dead. That he was in a deep swoon And the scriptures make it really clear that that cannot be the case. That he was really dead. And in our Western world, and in the sanitized world that we live in, we sometimes lose sight of what this really means. And I want to just, I want to help us understand this morning in the sermon that the resurrection is real. It happened in time. And the biblical record is quite clear that it wasn't the followers of Jesus who did this or carried him away or created a fable because that's important. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if God raised Jesus from the dead, then he is the only person in history that was on this earth, lived, suffered, and died, and was raised from the dead and remains alive today. There are other people who were raised from the dead, but they died later. And if that is the case, then he has some claims on our life that are unique to no one. uh, there, There is no other being who has the same kind of claims on you because of what he did. Uh, So I'm going to just take a little bit of time and read some scripture. We're going to begin with... uh, how about I read a couple to you and then we, we close to one we, we close with one together? 
Just listen very carefully to these words. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Oh, this is a Friday night. I, I, we close the service by reading from Luke. It, uh, the last verses of chapter 23 say this. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. That's really important that that's in there. They did not go to Jesus' tomb on the Sabbath because it was forbidden. So no one entered the tomb on the Sabbath. They didn't, they didn't prepare ointments. They had the ointments prepared and everything ready, but they didn't go do it the next day. They waited because it was the Sabbath. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalena and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostle. But these words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. When the Sabbath was passed, this is another account, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Saloma, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? That is uh, the account from Luke and the account from Mark. Now I'm going to read you the account from Matthew. In a little different version. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said it would happen. Come see where his body was lying, and now go quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, for Galilee, and they will see me there. Now listen. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city 
and told the leading priests what had happened. The women are not the only eyewitness accounts. The guards are eyewitness accounts too. And they went and told the the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was quickly called. And they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, You must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they are told. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. And one final account, and I think these are important for us to understand. This is from John. We'll, uh, follow along. Turn to John uh, 20, and you can follow along there. John 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalena came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings laying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and laying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciples who had reached the tomb, who had, then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, She stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I do not know where they put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. She didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, If you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. Mary, said Jesus. She turned to him and cried out. I'm sorry. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbania, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. When I look at those passages and look at them together, it becomes quite clear that it would have been physically impossible for one of Jesus' followers to do what what the high priest or the, the Jewish leadership said they did, and that's steal his body. That there is no one in the tomb by themselves without somebody else watching. That the scriptures are clear on that. And by the way, if you don't bribe somebody for the truth, so you don't pay somebody for something, you, you pay them, a bribe is, is simply that. So the Jewish leaders bribed the guards because they understood something had happened 
that, and they, they said, uh, oh, tell him his followers took him. And, and it, it is clear as you read the scriptural account, and, and to include that as Matthew did, proves to the whole world that his followers did not take him out of the tomb. Because if they would have, they would have gone and arrested the followers and thrown them into the tomb. Killed them. But instead they, say, they said, tell this lie. And actually, we'll pay you to do this. I think maybe even a greater cause to think about the resurrection is that as Jesus' followers began to move out from there, so they gather together. In a few weeks, they'll be in the upper room. Well, they'll meet Jesus again. He'll come through doors. He'll be different but yet, they'll be the same Jesus. They recognize parts of Jesus. In fact, later that day, two of his, not apostles, but disciples, are walk, uh, later th- this week, they're, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And, well, actually, they are apostles. Sorry. They're walking on the road to Emmaus. And, and Jesus comes, and they don't recognize him. And, they're, they're, and he, this man expounds, beginning with the book of Moses, he expounds to them the scriptures. And then they get together, and he breaks bread. And when he breaks the bread, they recognize him. Because where did he, he broke bread with them at the Last Supper, and it takes him right back to that Last Supper event. Oh, it, and then he disappears. And it, it, this is a Jesus that's not magical, but he is now fully God in a way that he wasn't in those first 33 years. And, and he moves within his people very quickly, and a few weeks later, he leaves. And, and, and again, think about what, what happens to these people as, as they go forward. They're, they're, they're scared. Their Lord has died. They think, well, I guess we're done. And then he meets them again, and then he disappears again. And then Peter says, well, I'm going fishing. And, and then... He ascends into heaven and says, even bigger things are going to happen. How can it be better than this? How can it be better than this? And then the Holy Spirit falls on them and they are absolutely transformed. They, they become people they never were before. They become little Christ moving through the town and the villages and touching people in ways that they never had before. That is the power of the resurrection. See, the the, the Holy Spirit falling down onto Jesus' followers couldn't happen as long as Jesus was alive on earth. And he said, I, I have conquered death. I'm going to heaven. And, and, and as I, I thought about this, I thought, okay, here's a simple thing. If the Jewish people, if the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities would have taken Jesus' body to hide it from his followers, at that point, as the Jesus movement is spreading in Jerusalem and out into the countryside, they should have produced the body and said, look, they're all wrong. He's dead. They don't. They cannot produce the body because Jesus is alive. And the Roman soldiers know it. The Roman soldiers who were there that day know it. They have been bribed to not tell it. Can you imagine living with that memory the rest of your life? You're guarding a tomb of a dead man. By the way, who guards the tomb? Who guards a dead man? They're guarding the tomb of the dead man and suddenly their lives are changed. They, they can never rise in the ranks of the Roman soldiers because now they're, they're, they're taking bribes.
So there are all these independent witnesses. And we could go into John's passage here. Like the, the, I'm particularly intrigued by the grave cloth. He was wrapped in, in, in grave cloth, and they would put spices inside then. Then they'd go back later and put more spices on. But the grave cloths are lying there. When Jesus called Lazarus forth from the tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And then he told Lazarus' sisters, unwrap him. And, and, and Jesus came through those cloths like, and, and it is also intriguing that the head cloth was folded and put away. There are some ideas about that that I'm still researching, but um, that, that, that the cloth is, you know, it's, it's laid separately. John clearly records that because he wants you and I today to know that he looked into that tomb and looked for that body and it was not there. But he didn't go in first. He outran Peter to it. But he didn't go in first because then they could have accused John of hiding his body. He waited till Peter got there. Peter was slower. Uh, kind of like Mike Slaybaugh and I when we run. But um, uh, Peter was slower. And, 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 but John waited at the, and then they went, and then Peter went in. So Peter was not in without an eyewitness, and John was not in without an eyewitness. And so it's clear that they couldn't, but they record very carefully the details surrounding the resurrection. And I know we've heard this all our lives, but we need to think about those things because they prove to the world there and today that Jesus is alive. Now, if Jesus is alive, if he rose from the dead, if those grave cloths are empty, and he walked with his followers and then ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came, what difference does it make in our lives today? What should it do to us? What should it do to us? Well, let's look a little bit through the lens of the disciples and think about what it did for them. They are fearful, betraying people. By the way, uh, we often talk about Jesus being betrayed by Judas. He was betrayed by all his disciples. All of them. He was betrayed by all twelve. None of them stood up for him. They're fearful. They're scared. They think Jesus has come to create a revolution in their world. Jesus has come to change their world. And yet he dies their leader's dead. But then the power of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit moves into their lives and they become absolutely transformed. They go and they start preaching in ways that they never... They go into the temple, into the heart of the religious system, right where the Roman guards were. And they go right into the heart of it and begin to preach. And they begin to baptize people. And, and this, this movement grows, the Jesus movement grows, and then they're put into prison. And by the way, the Bible in Acts records very little... But uh, which one of the disciples was almost immediately killed? I have to think. He was put in prison and then killed. James, yeah, one of the Jameses uh, was almost immediately killed. So one is already dead. But Peter is laying in prison. And I love this account in, in Acts where, where the angel comes in and strikes Peter on the side. Why the side? He, he takes his sword and strikes Peter. Peter, wake up. Whack! Strikes Peter on the side. That the side is so, is so powerful when I actually thought about this. I thought about it with Jenna's wedding. First time I ever thought about it is why the wound in Jesus' side? Because 
Why the wound in Adam's side? Why did God take Eve from Adam's side? Because he was looking forward to the day when that Roman soldier would stick that spear into the side of of, uh, Jesus and water and blood would gush forth and a new bride would be born. And and so powerful, that that kind of way. But he strikes Peter on the side and Peter gets up and he's surrounded by guards and he walks right out. And he comes to the house where they're having church and they knock and the woman comes to the door and says, uh, it's Peter, and runs back in. I, I love these little pieces of, of history like that. But, think about it. Peter kind of wakes up at that moment and says, well, I thought I was sleepwalking. And he, then he preaches. So, God absolutely transforms these men and women. And they no longer live in fear. They live in strength. The question for us today is, do we live in fear? And uh, th- this is something I'm working through Right now, as I, even as I uh, process the, the resurrection myself th- this season, I think about how much do I live in fear? Who am I most scared of? Why am I a coward? Because I am sometimes. Does the power of the resurrection have its grip on my heart to where I can actually live outside of fear? And something struck me that if we... uh, that, that Jesus also died, that the power of sin would no longer have sway over us. And oftentimes the reason that I have fear in my life is that I have pieces of my life that I need to deal with and I don't. And I'm afraid people will see those pieces... And how about just telling Jesus about those pieces? Uh, So I think Jesus came to deliver us from the power of fear. He came to deliver us from the power of sin. But he also came to deliver us from the power of systems. Jesus came to deliver us from the power of systems. From family systems to religious systems to political systems. This is the glorious thing that Jesus brings. He says... No longer are you defined by being a Yoder. No longer are you defined by being an Amish or a Mennonite. No longer are you defined by being an American. No longer are you defined by being a Jew or a a Roman. You are defined, first of all, by being a follower of Jesus. And when we can grasp the idea that Jesus came to deliver us from these systems... uh, We were talking uh, at the coffee table this morning with a few people, and we're talking about, are we streaming? Family systems, I'll just leave it at that. And, and as I was sitting there, it struck me that I don't have to live in those systems that every family has, and, and parts of them are sinful. They bind us. Jesus wants to loose us. And the resurrection is about loosing us from those powers and, and freeing us to be Marcus Yoder, a follower of Jesus. And when we embrace the freedom of that, when we can be honest about our systems that, we, that try to bind us. See, see, Satan is intent on binding us. He wants people to be bound tighter and tighter and tighter. And those constricting ropes come in and they just tighten everything down and tighten everything down and people shrivel up 
and die. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to tighten you down. And, and let me just also suggest that this is as, as small as our family systems, the, the Leroy Yoder family, and as large as the American political system. See, if you embrace the American political system as the means to bring change in our world, it will bind you. They don't have a living Lord. They have a president who will die. Jesus is king, and he puts those claims on us. See, the resurrection is about him putting his claim onto your life and say, if you want to be my follower, I, you, I have to have first allegiance. And we can only have the power over fear and the power over sin if we deal with the power that, the, that Jesus brings us to break away from the systems around us. Because when we embrace the systems to bring deliverance, we're keeping a small bit of ourselves back or a big bit of ourselves back. And we're saying, yeah, well, uh, yeah, he can have my Sunday life. The problem with Western Christianity is it is decided that it is something different. Christianity, our religion is something different than our public life. And Jesus' followers go out to prove that that is wrong. <laughs> Look at this. They go out and they go into the temple. They go into the place of the greatest religious system in, the, in their world. And they begin to preach. They use the material from the temple. They use the Torah. They begin to preach from Moses and all the way through. But they point to a different, different uh, set of, a different person. They point and say, but this is the fulfillment of that. So now here's your choice. In their space, they say that. That takes guts, by the way. It's kind of like me going to Congress and saying, you know what, I have the answer to America's problems. Let me tell you, um, if you go back to our Judeo-Christian, and I begin to build a case, and I say, but the answer is not more power, and the answer isn't the Republicans or the Democrats. The answer is Jesus to bring about change in America. I, I'd, I'd kind of be seen as a kook, and I'd be thrown out of the house. Right? Yes. Okay? But that's exactly what Jesus' followers do in the few years after his death. And they're enabled to do that by the fact that their Lord rose from the dead. Now, it can be a small, remember I said it's family systems. Many of us grew up in families that were good, that embraced godly values and good things. But at a certain point, you're going to have to break away from your family and establish yourself as a follower of Jesus that is different from them, and they may not understand that very well. That's what Jesus means when he says, I want everyone to leave father, mother, everything else, put their hand to the plow, and don't look back. Being Amish or Mennonite will not solve the world's problems. Being a yoder won't solve world's problems. I have to deodorize myself. But I have to step back. So, so we often talk about how Jesus' resurrection gives us power over fear and power over sin. But I don't think we can understand those very well if we don't first embrace the idea that Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven and the Holy Spirit coming gives us power over the systems of this world. Because when we break away from the systems of this world and begin to follow Jesus, 
as his followers, it suddenly gives us power to live well in our world today. Let's stand together. Again, like I said, I'm not minimizing Jesus. See, I think, well, let me just say this here. I just want to make this very clear. That I think that, that when we embrace, there is a system. Uh, it's not a system. There is a way. See, Jesus' followers are called the people of the way in Acts. That's the first words that they're used for. People of the way. They're going somewhere. It is a, it is a worldview, an idea, a system. No, not a system. I, I don't even want to call it that. It is a way. And when we embrace that way, it gives us power over sin and fear.